0: Hello, my name is Annie McManus and this is Changes. This is a place where I speak to people about the biggest changes that have affected their lives. My guest on this week's episode of Changes has no arms and shortened legs. She was born in the 60s and has lived a life proving people wrong everywhere she goes. Her name is Alison Lapper. Alison was awarded an MBE for her services to art and she paints holding the paintbrush in her mouth. Even though she's an artist herself, she's probably best known for being the subject of a Mark Quinn sculpture which depicted her limbless body, uh, heavily pregnant with her son Paris. It's a beautiful sight, huge Carrera marble statue. It was up in Trafalgar Square for two years and was quite the subversive neighbour for the other statues in the square. You know, your military war heroes, Lord Nelson. And all that. Uh, It caused outrage, and Alison is used to causing outrage just by her very existence. She went on to have a healthy baby boy called Paris and bring him up, and they had a remarkable bond, which she will tell us all about in this conversation. Paris tragically passed away in the summer of 2019. Alison is keen to talk about his death because of the issues that surrounded it. And I went down to on monsee and sat with her in her lovely light-filled living room with Alison perched on a pink chair and her PA Sally sat on the sofa and the cat padding around us. As well as discussing Paris, Alison taught me through her mother's rejection of her as a baby, her childhood in care and at Chaley Heritage School and the challenges she's faced in society as a disabled person and mother. She doesn't like the word brave, but it's hard not to think of it when you hear her talk. This conversation is filled with moments of grief and raw sadness. And Alison, after I checked, wanted them to stay in as they are real reflections of where she is at right now. Of course, this means it could be upsetting for some listeners too. So please check the show notes for content details. But right now, it gives me great pleasure to say, enter the podcast, Alison Lapper. Alison Lapper, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. It's been lovely to get on a train and leave London and go somewhere <laughs> to come to see you in, in, in a beautiful place and get a chance to like be on the beach. and oh, So thank you for letting me come here. That's absolutely my pleasure. I'm glad you like it. How have you been in, in COVID-19, in a post-COVID world? Yeah,
1: um, well, you know, my son Paris died last July and I worked every opportunity that came my way so I worked in mental health um a charity in London called Young Minds and I just threw myself into absolutely anything and everything Mm. because that obviously for me was the way I was coping with it but then of course lockdown happened and my diary suddenly got empty right and that it hit me like a bullet through the head I have to say, I realised I hadn't actually done any grieving at all, really, although I cried a lot. Mm. But when you're suddenly in a sort of solitary confinement almost, Mm. then that's when it it really hit me hard. I stopped painting. I just couldn't, I couldn't function because it was just too too painful. I really struggled with it. Um, and I suppose I was going to have to do that bit of the journey at some point. So maybe lockdown made me do it earlier than I mm. would have thought, you know. All I can say is I'm devastated and I miss him every second of every minute of every day. Mm. We had an amazing relationship, you know, because it was him and I through most of his life. And I had to fight social services and all sorts to keep him and, Mm. you know, people reported me that I didn't feed him properly and, you know, that I sexually abused him. And my doctor said to me, oh, if you had hands, I'd be worried. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I mean, he and I, we went through a lot of crap, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, being a disabled mother, single mother, just... It's hard work. It's hard work anyway, as any mother would know. It just felt like the world sometimes was pushing against both of us. Mm. And I think Paris felt that more keenly than even I did. I've been disabled all my life. I know what it feels like. But Mm. for him, I think all the attention and that's why I did BBC Child of Our Time, because I wanted to prove that I could do it. Which probably now, if you said to me now, would you do it? I'd go, no, I wouldn't. Why? Um, I think I ex- probably exposed Paris to situations that maybe he, I shouldn't have done. But when you, you know, I was 35 when I had him and I just wanted to prove that I could look after him and, you know, be a good mum. Whereas now, you know, I'm 55 and it's like, why do I need to prove anything to anybody? But I wish
0: I'd had that knowledge back back then. Mm. Yeah. So what did Child of Our Time mean for you and your life? They filmed, what, the first 10 years? Yeah. Like, uh, well, bits of it.
1: Yeah, bits of it up until he was 20. Well, he died just before 20. So, yeah, right up until they were 20. But, of course, Paris had already died mm. before that. I suppose I was very thrilled to be asked because I was the first disabled person, if you like, that was actually on a normal, I hate that word, but a documentary about people.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And I wasn't discriminated against because I was on that documentary. Does that make sense? I don't think I got treated any differently from any of the other parents, which was a really nice situation to be in because I was just part of that 25 families. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really, you know, very... It was quite, uh, what's the word, cathartic kind of... I didn't feel, oh, that's the disabled one over there and we've all got to pussyfoot around her, which mm. no-one did, which was brilliant. Mm. But
0: know? there was an element of you feeling like you had to show other people that you yes. were capable.
1: yeah, because which... they were going to take him off me.
0: Yeah. So, so... so from the start, when you became a mum, like, everything that you did feels totally against all odds. Yeah. Um, I, wanted to, I want to speak to you as much as you want to talk, obviously, about, yes. about Paris and, and you know the mental health problems that he suffered with. Do you mind if we go back to the, to the start, to, no. to your childhood? So you were born in 1965, am I right? Shh, yeah. <laughs> I've just told you my age anyway, so yeah. What, what were you told, like, what do you know about your mum's experiences of her pregnancy and, and birth? Well, um,
1: she denies it profusely, but, you know, here I am. But I, be- she basically was divorced my sister's eight years older than me, and my right. half-sister's eight years older than me, and um, she had an affair with a married man, basically, which back then, you did not do that. And she got pregnant with me, and she was always a bit paranoid from what I've learnt from my sister. She thought that my sister might be Down syndrome or whatever, so she's always obviously had this horrendous fear of disability. And then, of course, I pop up, or out about <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if it'd been April's Fool's Day it'd have been even better wouldn't it you know fantastic look what you've got
0: <laughs> and this so, is from her affair this this yeah, pregnancy right yeah
1: um, and I know because obviously family have you know have told me about him and, and his name and what have you and some of them actually met him I think my grandfather were, uh, were going to beat him up <laughs> in a bus stop you know in the right. Midlands so It did happen. And bless her, she's completely in denial. Unfortunately, after me, I don't know if what they actually told her. But I know a cleaner came into her room and was basically, you know, like, this child is not going to achieve anything or do anything. You know, Mm. it was all a
0: bit kind of doom and, Mm. and gloom, really. How long did you stay um, with your mom as a baby before you... I didn't. Basically, okay. she gave birth...
1: A cleaner went into her room because she yeah. was in a, a hospital and said, can you hear that baby crying? Well, it's, it's going to be dead in a couple of hours or whatever. And that was from a cleaner that was cleaning her room. I think my mother tried to take a, an overdose. and She was sectioned wow. under the Mental Health Act... And I believe that she was told to basically forget that she'd had me and just get on with her life and pretend that I hadn't happened, which is probably why we have such a difficult relationship. Because she did try to do that, did she? Oh, she. I mean, I, I didn't see her. The first time I ever clapped eyes on her and remember, I was four. Right. And that mother-daughter bond thing, gone. Completely gone. And you can't get it back. doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't get it back. Um, and I didn't realize that until I was in the situation, obviously with with Paris and what have you. So there's kind of this patterns, isn't there, in families? Mm. So, you know, I just think it's a kind of a perpetual motion of this is what happens.
0: So, did yeah. you want to try and break the seal of that pattern happening with your lack of relationship with your mom? You you, you had such a close bond with Paris when he was born, yes. right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean. When someone tells you that you t- you can't do this and you think yes I can. Yeah. Then that's what I did. You were taken into care then. What are your memories of that time as a young person, like as a as a as a young child? As a memories? young
1: child. I remember being like surrounded by people with nurses uniforms and I had foster parents that were going to adopt me. Right. And basically my mother stepped in and said you're not having her, because she's, I'm going to say it, I shouldn't, but I'm going to say it. Basically, she was told that, you know, she could have a house and my mobility allowance and, you know, all the all the things that go along with having mm. a disabled. And the, the, the agreement was that I would spend 12 weeks a year in the Midlands. That's all it took? Yeah. 12
0: weeks a year for her to have? Yeah, yeah.
1: And did you? Unfortunately, yes, I hate. Did. I loved love my sister. I used to hide behind her. I was frightened of my mum and I was a bit frightened of my stepdad.
0: Did she have or did they have all the facilities you needed?
1: No, 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 no. Don't be daft. No. she They wouldn't even put... When I learnt to dress myself, I used, like, normal hooks that you put on the wall to hang things up with. So I had one that went up, one went down. Mm. And they took it off the wall. As soon as I'd gone and they never put them up again, so I had to learn, I was about 12, 13, how to basically get my jeans or whatever off with a mouth stick in my mouth. You know. Just from being there? Yeah, because I, I needed the loo. Yeah. I had to go. So, I mean, I became this really quiet, almost didn't exist person, and I am not quiet. Mm-hmm. I don't normally have, not have anything to say for myself, but I had absolutely nothing you know, when you're only going for 12 weeks, yeah. a year, and all the rest of my life was spent at, at Chailey, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up with my friends. So to go into this family environment was, it was a bit odd,
0: mm. to be honest with you. Mm.
1: Um, so what type of
0: person were you at Chailey then?
1: Oh, like I am now, loudmouth, uh, <laughs> gobby, um, probably always in trouble, because I'm gobby. So even if I hadn't done it, because I'm loud, yeah. Yeah, you get, you there know, was presumptions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: How many kids were there in there? Was it a oh, big
1: place? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had there was four sites. Wow. And there was probably 250, 300 kids. Wow. So we were the majority, I thought, disability. But that that's how it was.
0: Able-bodied okay.
1: people a minority. They were the minority. Yeah. yeah. Totally. And it, I know this sounds crackers, but I don't remember noticing that I had a disability till I was about 13, 12, 13. Wow. And we started to go out into the outside world. We were slightly more allowed to do that then than when we, when we were younger I don't remember this, but the nurse, um, Mary Shepherd, told me they took us to Brighton Beach. Okay. There was about four or five of us limbless babies. Yeah. And we went on the beach. And they bought us ice cream. I've actually got a photograph somewhere. And we cleared that beach in 10 minutes. And people were dragging their kids off, going, this is disgusting. Wow. Yeah. And every Wednesday, because the school was private, it wasn't NHS, we had hordes of people coming around and staring at us. And it was like living in a goldfish bowl. Every Wednesday, without fail. Because they wanted, obviously, they wanted their money. Okay. To support the school. Okay, I see. Right. So, part of the deal was we'll come and look about. You know how marvellous we are.
0: Right.
1: You know, and of course, no thought for us actually what that's ha- like. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, yeah. to to know that every week you're going to be stared at hmm. all afternoon by probably four or five groups of people was was bizarre, but to me it was the norm. You know, I didn't know any different.
0: Did you make friends in there?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still friends with, with friend, Well, Simon, who I've known since I was three, I think. Amazing. Another friend, Pete, I've known him since I was a year old. Mm. Um, they used to put us in the same cot and pr- pram, because he's got no legs. Yeah. My legs are tiny, yeah. so there was room for both of us, if right. you see what I mean, yeah. Yeah. in the same pram. So, yeah, you, you know, they're, they're both of them a bit like my brothers, really. Yeah. I spent more of my childhood with them yeah. than I did my family.
0: So yeah. who who taught you in there about love and kindness? Because you clearly know about it. I think
1: Mary Shepard. Um, definitely, she had a massive influence on me. Um, and just other people that I met along the way, so to speak. And I suppose for me, I always knew in my heart of hearts, this is going to get better. I am going to grow up. And although... I never thought I'd leave. I kind of did know, if you see what I mean.
0: And how did you know? How did you have that optimism? I wish I knew,
1: because I would bottle it its spirit, isn't give it? it to kind people. of. Yeah. Um, but I just knew that there was more out there. Yeah, And maybe because, you know, I'm, I'm nosy and I don't know, yeah. I, I just, I knew that there was more that, and that this wasn't, because it was such a closed world, you know, no yeah. one, we didn't go anywhere, they came to us. Mm. So for operations, doctors, dentists, a lot, we didn't go anywhere. Mm. It all came to us. And then after I left school, I, uh, I left at 17, I then went to another place, which was uh, the Queen Elizabeth Foundation for Disabled People. And it was an assessment centre. And again, there, it was like, right, you know, we can now put all the things that you know, as in your physicality of being independent, together, so that you can actually go and not live on my own. They never expected me to manage. So again, I was up against, like, people not believing Mm. that I could do it. Mm. And when you're 17 and, you know, you know it all and... What have you. And I'm glad that I felt like that. I could have been crushed quite easily yeah. by people's attitudes towards me. Yeah. You know, you'll never live on your own. Well, I did. I went and lived in Shepherd's Bush
0: for seven years on my own. I've um, heard you talk about that and yeah. just how, how terrifying it was from oh. going from that closed environment to, to being completely exposed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was absolutely petrified. I'd, le- I'd learnt to drive, which was obviously a really important
0: part. So that is your big childhood change, isn't it? That that Having...
1: yes. I think going from, from from being in care and being told when I can bath, when I can sleep, what time I get up, what I, you know, what my day is, right. to complete and utter freedom. But it didn't feel like freedom. I was, it was scary. And actually very lonely for the first five months. Yeah. I I kept going back to see some friends near Banstead. And I remember her saying to me years later when you used to come and visit us, even though we'd chuck you out at one o'clock in the morning, which they did, yeah. and make me go back to London, the reason being was she said, I could see that you were gonna make it. I couldn't see it because I to me it was awful. You know, I'd been surrounded by people all my life And now there was nobody.
0: And also surrounded by people who looked like you, you know, like, and and suddenly you are a a total minority in a world of. Oh, yeah,
1: that was a shock to the system. Right, yeah. real shock to the system. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, by the time, you know, I was 14, 15, I totally realised that I was disabled and Mm. what have you, and that, you know. But I can remember things like, you know, we, we would go to a market at weekends when I was at school, and I'd come back richer than when I went. So I just think people, oh. This is great. People just give me what, money. People just give you money. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> great.
0: This is would good. T- take it all.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. And I never said no. Why would you? Why would I? Because it meant I could go and buy another couple of um, records or <laughs> what have you. Do you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. oh yeah, this is great. But when you hit your teens, oh my God, was it different. Mm. Stroppy teens. Yeah. Then, then I realised how hard it yeah. actually is to be different. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have said to me, you're going to own your own home, you're going to have a child, you're going to have a degree, an honorary doctorate, blah, 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 blah. Mm. I'd have gone, no, I won't. Because mm-hmm. I, although I've got the drive, mm. because I'd never been told that I was going to be able to do that, I sometimes doubted myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You
1: know, because everybody else, more or less doubted me. They were just this handful of people that obviously I'd got to know very well and that were my support unit really, which everybody needs, friends and people around them
0: that, that do believe in them. So what was what did driving do for you and the and, and kind of getting this car? Ah, oh, getting my car. I nearly had to take my mother to
1: court to get my mobility allowance back. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh my god! You- and when you're 17, it's like, oh god, really? And basically, she'd still been applying for a child benefit, and I was 17, so there was a back pay of about two grand that I should have had, and they took it off me <sighs> because yeah, I was just like, thanks. So basically, we, you know, f- to get a car was a big deal because obviously, there's no way I could afford to do the adaptations and mm. whatever. And what was really interesting was these. Four gentlemen, I remember, um, came down to the mobility centre. Yeah. And I'd just been told that I was definitely would be able to drive, that there'd be no problems, and that something could be adapted. And there yeah. was only one driving electrical steering
0: mm-hmm.
1: out at the time, which was a bit... it played up a lot.
0: Right.
1: Um, so basically, these chaps, they designed this power steering Around me, which was amazing. So bespoke for your Absolutely. needs. Absolutely, I was the very first amazing. ever ever driver. If it hadn't have been for their invention, I probably would have got on the road, but maybe you know not as fast. And I can remember one—I don't know—busybody from somewhere said she'll never be able to drive in the dark. And I don't know why somebody had that thing in their head. So again, the other people putting their limitations of in their heads back onto mm-hmm. onto me when i meet people they have absolutely no expectation of me whatsoever will she even string an intelligent sentence together and that is weird yeah it's so weird yeah to think that i don't bring anything and like you know apparently my friends do you know do everything for me and uh no and that I can't be a proper friend because I need them more than they need me. No, actually, because they rely on me emotionally
0: Yeah.
1: in any other ways. Yeah,
0: yeah You know, just yeah.
1: because they might help me go for a wee yeah. doesn't mean that I can't be there for yeah. them. Mm. Um, so, again, that's another kind of thing that people, you know, oh, you're brave, aren't you, to, to be a friend?
0: How, what was your relationship with that word, brave?
1: Brave. Yeah, I'm not brave. When you
0: read about you, it comes up a lot.
1: I know, mm. I know. And I don't know why. I'm full on. I mean, w- why am I brave? You know, I'm, I'm bolshy and I am mm. do what I want to do and I get out there and, you know, and I make people feel uncomfortable. That in itself is the most weirdest. And how do you do that?
0: Just by... By being there. Just by existing Yeah,
1: in their world. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, things like if I'm shopping and I haven't got anybody with me, I will ask people, general public, Mm -hmm. oh, could you please pass me that, I don't know, oil or whatever it is off the top of the Mm -hmm. shelf? Some people, no probs. Other people, they pretend they've gone deaf. Oh, God. But I chase them around the shop. (laughs) (laughs) I, excuse me, and I'm not, as you can hear, I'm not, (laughs) excuse me. Excuse me, could you, sorry, could you just come back and get that tin for me or or please? I would be really grateful and i just follow them. Oh my God, I love it. And they either get faster and faster mm. and completely like walk away cringing and thinking, oh, she's still following me. Or, you know, other people help. So, yeah. and it's like, why does my
0: presence have that effect but it's also as soon as you shout back at them it's them being confronted with their own yeah. with their own like insecurities yeah. and their own fear so so they, they 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 don't want to have to do that <laughs> oh, no. oh my
1: god and i make them if i can i make them do it yeah you know because i just think come on yeah. you know this is ridiculous i'm not scary i'm just a person i'm a human being i can remember one time i was in a chemist And the woman uh, that was serving me was a friend. So we were chatting away. Mm -hmm. And there was two, I'm going to call them mature ladies, (laughs) being nice, that came up onto my left-hand side. And I was walking back then. So I'm three foot ten, which is just a laugh in itself. And basically, they they said to my friend in front of me, do you think people like that should be allowed to have children? I was gobsmacked. Did you say anything? No, I, I, you know, you think, oh, I would have said, but yeah. you just, you're so shocked. I'll try to take it in, yeah. That how can somebody else tell me what I can and can't have or do? You know, why, why would I be a bad mother because I'm disabled? So I fought that all along.
0: defying expectations did you ever dream of being a mother before you got pregnant or think about it yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah can you remember when and where you discovered you were pregnant um yeah I was seeing somebody
1: in Gloucester I suppose we went out for about three months or so and then as time went on I I realized that he this was not going to be like a permanent relationship um unfortunately and so I decided that I was gonna do it by myself i had done everything else Mm -hmm. so having Paris was kind of like I can I can do this it's not you know I know it's gonna be hard but I can do it unfortunately his father's a bit of a flake so um that's all I really want to say about that again I kind of knew that I was gonna have to do this on my own I'm very lucky I've got good friends
0: when Paris was born how did you and he adapt to each other's needs
1: um he was amazing and if you'd have told me even the midwives couldn't believe it if you'd have said to me that child is going to learn to latch onto you by himself learn to put his arms around your neck when you're in the swimming pool together mm-hmm. he used to lay on my belly so I'd be laying in the water and he'd be laying on my belly and I just couldn't believe that he did that. You know, how did he know to hang on, put his arms around my neck at five months old? And he knew how to do it. Yeah. It was, it blew my mind, completely blew my mind. So every little hurdle and journey that he and I went through kind of, you know, did blow my mind. One minute Paris would be lying down there on the, on my shoulder. And then if he was hungry, he literally got himself on Maneuvering. My himself, belly yeah, belly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to fit I mean he you know latched on by himself because obviously I couldn't hold him or
0: yeah.
1: you know um it, I couldn't guide him and say you know latch on he he had to do it yeah. and he was amazing absolutely he blew my mind and I think it blew a lot of other people's minds as well because being no. a new
0: mum, anyway, yes, is, is this mind blowing thing when it your is. whole body takes on a whole new significance. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you are a provider, you're a nurturer, you're a vessel. All of this. <laughs> oh yes. How did it change you? That those kind of first few years of him being around, how did it change you and your outlook to, to yourself?
1: I and I fell in love with him. Yeah. Um. I fell in love with him even before I had him. Being a mother is it just gives you another perspective, if you like. And I'm sure I've made mistakes along the way and and what have you. Because at the end of the day, you know, how do you learn to be a mother? You have to do it. Right. Uh, and there isn't anybody else that can teach you. Because no two people bring up their children the same. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge learning curve. Mm. Definitely. And I tried to protect him. You know, I think my whole thing was that, you know, I needed to protect Paris. Mm. Because I didn't feel that it was... The attention was wanted and yet I'd kind of created that because obviously, you know, we did TV and yeah. radio and I did take him out of school and obviously people have got their opinions about that too. But I felt that I needed, he needed me to be around as much as yeah. I possibly could. So what age you know? was
0: he when you took him out of school when you made that decision?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, I'm sure the first time as he was probably about five or six Yeah. and I knew school was, was going to become a problem. And he struggled, he really struggled. In primary school, you, yeah. you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he had counselling and stuff. How so? I mean, how, how was he struggling? What, was, what do you think uh, at that time? Other, I suppose other people's opinion of his mother. Yeah. I, things like, you know, he, on my wheelchair, he'd sit on the side, on the arm, put his arm around me mm. and his legs across me. And the head teacher said, Paris Lapper, get off your mother's lap. You don't need to be on her lap. And I actually stopped her in mid-flow went, excuse me, I can't hold Paris's hand like all these other parents are doing with their children. Mm. Paris can't hold mine, so actually this is the way we do it. He sits on the side of me with his arm around me and don't make a big deal about it, which of course they did. Mm. And then of course when he started mental health problems and issues and...
0: So when did you notice that starting? When did you notice that he was struggling with his mental health? How old was he? He was about
1: 14, maybe. I think it probably started earlier. But he was very good at hiding what was going on. Yeah, Yeah, because his mates used to come here, because I was apparently the most chilled-out mum. So, of course, the little buggers all used to come here and uh, cause absolute havoc... Mm. And they all started smoking cannabis and what have you. Yeah. And I suppose the reason why I didn't call the police, because they were, what, 14, was it wasn't just my child, it was other people's. And if I called the police, what was my relationship with these other parents going to be like? And yeah. oh, I mean, it, it was so fraught with scenarios and what should I have done. And But his friends, a lot of I really liked. Yeah. Some of them he'd known right from
0: sort of, four, And they're a support system of sorts for him, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, and as I say, there was a few of them that I just really, really liked. So Mm. I I suppose you could say I was too, maybe people would say I was too soft and what have you, but because I loved having them around and Mm. I turned a bit of a blind eye Mm. to what they were doing. Because I thought, well, if they're not doing it in in my garage, they're doing it somewhere else. Mm. At least I know where they are. Again, should I have done it differently? I I I don't know. And of course, it would be my son that gets addicted. Of course, that's what threw me. When did you realise
0: that he? It was, it was a matter of addiction. It had gone beyond recreational use. Oh, not until he was
1: about seventeen. Okay.
0: Because the
1: mental health became more apparent than the addiction. Okay. Because I've never been in that. I've never really been around people that have got drug problems or yeah. what have you, I, w- I didn't know what signs to look f- to look for. Mm. You know, now, when I look back, I, I think, oh, yeah, right, that was a sign. Mm. That was a sign. But also trying to, you know, I tried to avoid social services for 14, 15 years. Of course. And here I was inviting them back in because Paris was falling apart and I didn't know how to help him. So what was his behaviour? How was he falling apart? Everything. He couldn't get out of bed, right. uh, insecurity. You know, Paris, when he was younger, was like me. He was on fire. He was brave. He'd do daft things. He was funny. And I watched him shrink into this mess of uh, someone with mental health who didn't know if they were coming or going. And, of course, because the drugs on the top as well, yeah. it made it... Well, I mean, there was stage where I couldn't actually get him up out of his room anymore he stayed in his room mm. he would throw up and I'd go right you need to get up so that I, we can change the bed he
0: wouldn't move mm. so he started living in this
1: mess if you like
0: and as a parent who as you said you don't have any experience of drug addiction um and you don't know what the tools are when it comes you don't have the tools for for reacting to mental health like well I'd gone
1: through mental health myself right when he was about eight or nine I had about two and a half years in fact it was after I wrote my book and I realized I'd opened a can of worms that couldn't put the lid
0: back on okay all this stuff came to surface yeah yeah
1: I think a little bit of mine probably had a, a marker on him because I wasn't taking him out he yeah. was going out with his mates and with their parents. Yeah. Because I wasn't. I couldn't yeah. face it. Yeah. And there's also an awful lot of opinions around Paris. And, I. you know, from from what the word go, I had to have people in to help me with Paris. Right from the word go. And to begin with, I was literally employing au pairs, which is fine if you're a family unit, i.e. you've got a mother and a father and mm. brothers and sisters, because you can keep them in tow. But yeah. when you're relying on them to help you with your child, it becomes a different story. To have another dynamic of a person in your house yeah. that isn't your family. Yeah, all the time. All the time. Yeah. People love to give you their opinions and their mm. wonderful advice about how shit you are and what you're doing wrong as a as a mother you're too soft with him you do that you don't do this blah. you know so i was getting it from all mm. angles and i probably didn't deal with it very well because what should have said is shut your mouth yeah i'm doing it this way yeah. and he's my son and i'm going to spoil him and yeah. over, you know like, you can't overlove somebody but but yeah. do you know what i mean and it was it's bloody hard you know because mm. people are really Vocal and they don't care what they say to you mm. and how actually that might hurt. Mm. But not just me, Paris. Him. You know, pe- Paris saw people telling me how crap I was.
0: Mm. What did they? What did that do for Paris? Yeah, yeah. Did he? Was he getting the support that you think he needed at that time? No, <clears throat> from the welfare system.
1: Because he, bless him, he would not engage. With anybody. I had, okay. to, had to have him sectioned. Right. How, old, how old was he? When? he was 17, 17, yeah, 17 when right. he got sectioned. Right. And, but they couldn't wait to kick him out. He wasn't in there long enough. Right. right. Oh, he'll be fine in the community. He was not fine in the community
0: at all. So I presume when he was in, in that, uh, the, that care, he wasn't able to take drugs? How, um, how did he cope with that? Though they were drugging him with other things. So he was still, yeah. yeah. And then it's so blurred, isn't it? Mental yeah. health and prescription drugs and and addictive drugs yeah. that he's on. Yeah. You don't know where one starts and one and stops. And he was
1: so intelligent and clever. He used to tell the psychiatrists what medication he thought he should be on. Yeah. So he would reel off all this stuff um, and tell them the symptoms, yeah. tell them what, what it would do. I mean, and he got up their noses because it was almost like...
0: Don't tell me how to do my job.
1: Absolutely. And you know what human beings are like. Yeah. And again, I mean, I had to lie to him. And so like the day that he was taken into hospital, he wouldn't let go of me because he knew damn well something was going to happen. And in the end, I had to say to him, son, I really, I mean, I did, I needed to go to the loo. So he had to let go of me. Hmm. And that's when he was grabbed. And it was awful. It was mm. horrific mm. to watch your child being manhandled by the police
0: mm.
1: and put into what looked like a prison, you know, the security boxes yeah. that they carry prisoners in. Yeah, It was that, like that. Wow. I cried the whole way because I felt like I'd failed him completely.
0: And what had happened before that to make it... Get to that point of 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 severity.
1: Um, Well, I'm on um, medication for pain because I'm I'm in pain 24 seven. I had to start hiding it and locking it away, right? Because Paris obviously was when he was having a come down. He wanted something, yeah. And my medication probably helped in that way. And he would just he would come into my my bedroom and he would just bombard me with you know i need this now mum, and you don't care and, and again i was on my own in the room with the six foot yeah. young man yeah. who was off his face who was psychotic and i got scared yeah you know yeah and if i'd say no to him which i'd obviously had to because my medication wasn't for him but he got to the point where he was nicking it Right. wherever i tried to hide you know even if i'd locked it away which i did at one stage he found out where the key was mm. whatever i did he was the able-bodied one not me yeah so of course he could find it yeah you know and i i have 24 hour care and they got scared because he'd be ranting and raving and keeping them awake and mm. i mean god talk about who did i choose my son or my PA's and I remember when he was arrested one time here and they they took him away and he looked at me and he went, Mum, you always choose them over me. Mm. That me. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to cry. Completely and utterly, yeah. And he was right in some respects because they weren't going to work for me if he was in the house. Mm. So I had to have him removed. And as much as I went to visit him, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. You know, when he was younger, he, he used to come and sit on the bed with me and we'd watch uh, The Walking Dead together and stuff like that, you know. And I'd be hiding behind his shoulder because of scary bits. And he'd be like, mother. And he used to call me "mudder" all the time. Mudder. Yeah. <laughs> he was very funny when he was good, as in not out of his face and on, on drugs. He was bloody funny. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, I couldn't tell him off when he was younger because I'd laugh. <laughs> he would make me laugh. And then he got to the stage where he was big enough and strong enough that if I was going to him in Paris, I don't want you to... He'd pick me up and move me. Right. So who had the upper hand here? Yeah. Me or Paris? Paris.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think he thought, because I'd got PAs, that they were there to clean up after him. And trying to teach him actually... People aren't there to clean up after you. Yeah. You know, I think he got very, very mixed messages mm. a lot of the time. Well mum, you get all the help. So sometimes it was almost like he was blind to the fact that I needed that help. Of course,
0: because your PAs are your arms. Yeah. They are yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and they were part of our lives. Yeah. So he used to look at me and go, Well, they do it for you. And I'd be like, Yes, but Paris, <laughs> I don't have any arms. <laughs> I love him to bits, I still do. And I wrestled with that myself. Mm. I love you. I don't love you when you're like this. Mm. But my overwhelming feelings are that you're my son and I love you. Mm. And how do I how do I help you? How do I and I thought by getting in help, like getting him a social worker would would help and I, I'm not sure that it did now. So he was put in this anorexic institution And then he was taken Because they didn't know what to do with him Okay. So you're, you've got a 17 year old lad Who can't really go back and live with mum I mean I did keep having him back Because yeah. it broke my heart Yeah. And I kept having him back Yeah. And then I'd have to call the police again And they'd have to take him away Right. Uh, and it got to the stage where I realised I couldn't keep doing this So I had to stick to you not coming home
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. What are your memories then of the last kind of couple of years of his life? What do you what do you remember about?
1: He was difficult. I'm not going to say that he was a piece of cake because he wasn't, but I still got glimpses of my loving son and my funny boy. Still got that. And and he, even though when he was, you know, quite sort of psychotic and on, full on, he would still hugged me. He still was loving. You know, he was, I, and I think I bullied him and I feel terrible because the school was saying, if you don't get him to school, we're going to take you to court. Mm. And I'm like, how do I get a six foot two human being out of his bed Even the tutors, in the the end, came round to try and get him up. And then they realised what I was up against. The One psychiatrist who I really, really liked, can't say who it was, but he knocked the nail on the head when he said, what you two need for Paris to be at home with you is another PA, a man, for Paris to live in the house so that when he gets out of control, there is somebody there that can stop him from obviously hurting himself because he was self-harming by this time yeah. and hurting me or my PAs. And they basically turned around and said, it's too expensive. I now have a dead son. Thank you very much. That's And he said, two years, three years, and he would have been back on track. And do you, do you
0: believe that? I do, yeah. 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 Maybe
1: you can say I'm stupid to believe that, but... There were glimpses all, all the way along.
0: And somewhere along the way he turned 18, I presume. He so did. So your parental and then responsibilities. That was on, it. Yeah. Where and he was no living, control.
1: was he was thrown out of. I mean, I had him home. I had him back home because they literally chuck, chucked him out on the street. I went, you're going to put him out on the street? Mm. But you said he was a vulnerable adult. Hang on a minute. Yes, yeah. The next
0: day yeah.
1: after
0: he turned after 18. after his
1: birthday, I had to go and pick him up. That's disgusting. You don't do that. And I know he did stuff that was dangerous and didn't help himself and whatever, but he needed help and stability. The lady that did look after him was brilliant in the fact that she kept a roof over his head. But he was moved every eight, ten weeks. We went out two weeks before he died and we went out for the day to Brighton and we had the best day. It was like... I got Paris back yeah. for the day. And, like, really funny things happened. Like, we went onto the fun fair, and he got on the dodgems, And there was a very pretty young lady on the dodgems, And he, he got all cocky and was yeah. like, you know, and went and chatted her up. Uh, sw- they swapped phone numbers. And, yeah. you know, and I was like, oi, you tart. <laughs> but I loved it. Yeah. I loved watching him. Just have something that I hate the word normal, but just have a day where he was happy. And it was brilliant. And we had such a lovely day. And it was the last photograph that we ever had together.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: And then we were doing a video, weren't we, for poor George. Wow. So we were looking very strange. So anyway, I went to the loo, came back through. And I think you said to me, the police are here. And I was like, oh, no, what's he done now? Right. And I, again, I feel terrible for thinking that. They said, um Paris is dead. And I went, what? Yeah, it's Paris. And I went, no, it isn't. Well, no, I just didn't. It didn't. Of course, yeah. It's- Why would he be dead? And then I said, what, he's been murdered? And they were like, we don't think so. But. Is being investigated, and of course, I wasn't allowed to go and see him until they'd really, you know, said that it wasn't, he wasn't murdered basically. Although, in my eyes, the drug people that get sold in the drugs, they're the murderers, to be honest with you. I mean, I know Paris took them, but if that wasn't going on, he might still be here. And I think what breaks my heart is he was on his own and he probably lay there for three days. Nobody knew. Where was he? He was in another little hotel that they put young people in that they can't cope with. But there was no care, as in, you know, you're not he wasn't assigned anybody to look out for him or...
0: So he was on his own.
1: Yeah, and they didn't tell them, which, again, because of he was 18, well, he was 19, so, that his privacy was more important than, than actually telling these people that he had a drug problem so they said to me, we well, would have looked out for him a bit more if we didn't know i rem- I went to see the lady in the end. I couldn't go for quite a while, but then I did actually go and see her. And her son was found Paris dead. And he'd found his own son dead a year, yeah, almost to the day. Same thing. So God knows how that's traumatised him. Mm. And he said to me, the last time I saw Paris was Saturday night, He'd got a, a bottle of brandy in his hand and he was a really merry, but funny merry, not aggressive. And he said, to, he said to me that I'd said to him, go on, you know, you need to get upstairs, mate, and go lie down, and go to sleep. And then that was it until Tuesday. And I'd text him to say, sorry, can't pick you up today, darling. I'm not feeling that fantastic. I'll get you tomorrow. And of course I didn't hear from him and I didn't think it was strange until after I'd realised that he was laying there dead.
0: What are you most angry about, in retrospect, about how Paris was treated and the support he got or didn't get? All of it. Yeah. To be honest.
1: I mean, I haven't shouted at anybody, which is amazing, I think. It's miraculous. And his inquest is in December. It's really difficult because it's not about blaming anybody. And I really am... I mean, Sally keeps saying to me, you can't blame people. It's about why did he die? Well, he died because he didn't have what he needed. He was neglected, in my eyes. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was a combination of a, lot of a lot of things. Even me, you know, I don't think I'm blameless because I'm not. So, and it just feels now that it's just going to, it's a whitewash. And that, you know, if, if they're never going to learn from this, what's the point? You know, I, I get that they're strapped for cash because I have to fight for my own care every year because apparently my arms grow every year and my legs get long. So if I'm having to prove that I need 24-hour care, if you're able-bodied and got mental health problems, well, forget it. And I think it's just a lack of training. They don't know what to do. And because I'm was I'm a very proactive mother, which I, I was... When he hit 18, I wasn't allowed to be anymore. It was all about his privacy. And I'm like, but hang on a minute. I'm the one that sees him the most. I'm his mother. And now I'm not even allowed to know what he's feeling, how's his, you know, what is temporary. None of it. So there was stuff going on that I didn't even know about. I've met other people who have really, you know, struggled with mental health. You know, in fact, I've worked with a few now, haven't I? And it's been great because they've given me the opportunities to have, like, group exhibitions. Brilliant. And when I started to paint for the exhibitions, because I realised I didn't have enough, all these really angry faces... It was me, obviously, shouting,
0: it's screaming. It was way of shouting. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. But the other freaky thing that happened was Paris kept coming out. Yeah. I've never painted Paris ever, cause I always said I can't do your ju- you justice. You're beautiful, and I can't do you justice. And now, he just keeps coming out. It's real so. You
0: finish your painting, and there he is. Yes,
1: and I actually said didn't I to you. I said, "Who's that?" And she was Paris, you nutter. And I'm like, <laughs> "Does it look like Paris?" Like, yes. Yeah. That's where my my anger is, I suppose, is in my paintings. And just listening and, and hearing about other people's mental health journeys and just how bad we are in this country about it. You know, the system needs to be completely pushed aside, start again. Right. You know, there needs to be a little hub in every town, village, where if you're starting to do dangerous things to yourself or you're feeling like you're going to commit suicide... Or you know, any of that self harm, you, you can go to this place that's a place of safety. There's no police there, no one's going to tell you off.
0: Because I, I think it's it's there's a de stigmatization that has to happen, isn't it? Mm. Where where people realise that they're not naughty, they're yeah. not disruptive, they're ill. Yeah, and and, and, for and parents as well, yeah. and all the people around them need to understand yeah. what it means, and and, and no one's I, got any education about
1: no, it. No, no, you know, because for a while I thought he was being bloody difficult and naughty. Mm.
0: I didn't realise. What would you, you know? What would you say to listeners who want to engage in the teenage mental health crisis and want to Contribute and, 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 and try and help affect change in it. Is there anything people can actually do? That's a huge question. Isn't right. It?
1: Because how do we change the whole attitude towards yeah. mental health? Because what we do is we use the police to be the social workers that they're not. No. you know, And young people and older people get banged up in a cell. That is not going to help anybody's mental health. And keep arresting them, which kept happening, mm. you know. All that does, is, as a, if you like, as a parent or as the onlooker, is make you feel worse.
0: Mm.
1: But it was you that called the police in the first place. Because... There's
0: no one else to call.
1: There's no one else to call. There's no social workers at 10 o'clock at night or whenever it was that, you know, people start to kick off. I mean, yeah. night times, we know. Winter, it gets more difficult because there's not so much daylight. You know, there's so many factors that are just not even taken into consideration. And it's like, you know, we'll go to A&E and somebody might take you seriously that you're going to slash your wrists. You shouldn't have to get so desperate that nothing else in the world is going to help you apart from you being dead. Mm. How is that right? Mm. Why have we not intervened before and helped? Mm. But in, in good ways, not in you know by telling people off why do we tell people off that have got mental health if someone stabs somebody they always go oh yeah another nutter mental health let's get to the what's going on with that person no two people have the same kind of mental health problems anyway yeah so you can't treat the whole thing as one thing mm. because it's it's different for everybody mm. and I, and I don't know how you you bypass that i i just I don't know.
0: Final question that we always ask people in this conversation is what change would you most like to make, either to you for your life or looking outside your life to the world around you? Mm. Is there anything that you're still really wanting to see change?
1: Well, I hate to bang on about it, mental health, bang but it. I think that's probably... I would love to see people being cared for properly, looked after. Because even as a disabled person, my worth to society isn't really looked upon as very important. Mm. You know, we we drain society of money, and you know, I mean, I work. Get give me a break. Do you know what I mean? I pay tax. Get stuffed. But I'm, you know, what I said in the beginning, nobody looks at you or treats you like you are a valuable member of society. And that's with mental health and also, I think, with drugs and all those things mixed up together. It's almost like you're not looked upon as somebody who's worth investing in. We should be embracing people. I know it's hard. I never said it was easy. Not stigmatizing people and people are cruel and I know that just by living with this yeah I just I wish we could just all sound so sissy doesn't it but get together and value each other more and again I think you know like people bringing in people like myself that you know has experienced losing a child and we now have a wealth of knowledge how can we now use that to help somebody else Tell me something, last question. What are you hopeful for? That my wedding happens. Congratulations wedding. on your engagement. Thank you. Uh, next year, the uh, 2nd of October, see what happens with C-19, whether we actually get to go up the aisle or not. It's such a difficult, because I, I'm so ripped and, and torn about Paris, but I'm still here, Yeah. unfortunately. Because believe me, when he first died... I really was thinking that I want to go with you. Yeah. And the thing that stopped me was Cy. Was because yeah. how could I yeah. leave him? Yeah. Because I know he would feel like I feel yeah. about Paris. My one wish, can I just have another half a day with him? Mm. Just a hug. What would you say to him? Oh, God, I love you. I'm sorry if I was a rubbish mum, if I didn't understand you properly. You know, I just keep telling him how much I love him. And I miss him. I miss him so much.
0: Sorry. God, don't be. Don't be sorry.
1: I mean, people expect you to get over it, and I'll never get over it. That hole, my Paris hole, is massive. I can't fill it. Not even if I buy a puppy. It's, <laughs> <laughs> God, so. it's
0: kind of learning how to live with the hole, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. And you, you know, life is is. I look at life in a very different perspective now. It's 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 precious. Yeah. Obviously, it's not my time to go. I've still got lots to do, lots to say, lots to live for. Yeah. I mean, sigh. Obviously, is yeah. wonderful. We call him the amazing sigh because <laughs> he, he really he really is. He's yeah. my soulmate. Yeah. Finally, met somebody. Yeah. Who he gets me. Yeah. And I get him. Yeah. Completely.
0: Alison Lapper I wish you all the joy that this world can bring you and I'm really grateful for talking to me today I would love to sit and talk to you for the whole afternoon but I have to get a train back to pick (laughs) up my kids from school Ah. (laughs) (laughs) but I love talking to you thank you oh thank you thank you for listening absolute pleasure I'm so thankful to Alison for allowing me into her home to hear her story I've never encountered anyone like Alison and I don't just mean physically I mean her strength of will there's something so vivid and alive about her spirit so kind of shining it's hard to describe but I hope that you could hear it there in the way that she spoke um, about her life and her future. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, you can always call the Samaritans. They can be reached on 116 123 and also check the show notes for details outside the UK and Ireland. And if you're interested in the way that Alison paints, check out the Mouth and Foot Painting Artists Association as well. Please go rate and review and subscribe to this on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out when you do that and thank you for your comments on captain tammy joe schultz if you haven't listened yet check it out she saved 148 lives when a plane engine blew up and she was a trailblazer for female pilots orla on instagram said she needs her story made into a movie like the male pilots right orla Uh, i would love to see that film for now though there's her episode on changes go check it out next week on the penultimate episode of the series i speak to denise who was diagnosed with body dysmorphic disorder and was hospitalized but has since come out with a determination for life it's going to be a very very inspiring and interesting listen this episode was produced by louise mason with support from abby Hollick for rethink audio thank you until next time